0: On the book of Psalms, this morning we're going to look at Psalm 118, and uh, we're just going to look mostly at the second half. We're going to look at Psalm 118, verses 19 to 29, and if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn your Bible to uh, Psalm 118. If you don't, it's printed in your order of worship, and you can follow along there. Um, If you don't have a Bible, and you would like one, and you need one, there are Bibles in the foyer, and you're welcome to take one and keep it. I encourage you to read it. Um, but we're going to look at Psalm 118 this morning, um, which includes words shouted by the people in Jerusalem as Jesus entered on Palm Sunday, on the first Palm Sunday, and the people were waving the palms, and they were crying out, Hosanna, or in other words, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And, and it's, it's so interesting how there's this huge crowd of people who are crying out save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're, they're crying out praise to Jesus as he enters, the, enters Jerusalem. And then just a few days later, I don't know if any of these people are part of the same crowd, but there's another crowd that's crying out crucify. And uh, maybe these people are some, some of those people. Maybe they're not, but at the very least they're silent as that other crowd cries crucify him. Um, and it makes me wonder how as much as those people were quoting these lines from Psalm 18, how much did they really understand what they were saying? How much do we understand what it's saying? (laughs) Sometimes we think we know, but we don't necessarily know. Um, So listen to God's word as I read from Psalm 118, verses 19 to the end, uh, to verse 29. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes by your spirit, that you would help us to behold the glory of Jesus as we look at these verses that were written so many years before he even came. And Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts, that you would even change us change us whether it's slight change or radical change we ask for change this morning as we look at your word and, and we pray all these things in jesus name amen well I, I think most of us whether you are a beatles fan or not you are probably familiar with the song lucy in the sky with diamonds Is everybody at least somewhat familiar with that song lucy in the sky with diamonds you guys know what that song is about lsd, LSD. okay that's what i thought Growing up, you know, I thought it was a song about drugs. That's what all my friends told me growing up, you know. Lucy L in the sky, S with diamonds, D. It's obvious, it's about somebody doing drugs. Um, interestingly, I just found out recently um, that uh, the, um, the author of the song, John Lennon, adamantly said it was not about drugs. And actually the, the whole reason he wrote the song was because one day his son Julian brought home a painting that he did in school. And the painting was of a girl in the sky surrounded by stars. And, and, and John Lennon said, I said, son, you know, what is this picture of? And he's like, well, that's my classmate Lucy in the sky with diamonds. And, uh, and that's, what, that's why he wrote the song. That's what the song is about. It's not about LSD or drugs at all. And uh, I grew up my whole life thinking it was about one thing, when in reality, it was about something else. And even some of us may hear uh, his explanation, John Lennon's explanation, and be like, no, no. We don't believe you. But, uh, but seriously, you know, I've watched the interview, and, and he seems very sincere. He's very believable, and, and I believe him. Um, but, but you know, it's, it's a silly example of how we can all be easily mistaken, and we can live under misconceptions about thinking that, that something is about one thing, when in reality it's about something else. We can even insist on it <laughs> when somebody explains it to us the other way. Um, But I think this is what happened to the Israelites who welcomed Jesus on the first Palm Sunday as they cried out these words, right? Verses 25 and 26. Save us, we pray, O Lord. Hosanna. Save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They, They all were under the impression as about that what they were crying out as Jesus entered Jerusalem was about one thing. When in reality, they didn't really understand. They didn't really have a clue about what it is that they were saying, what it is Psalm 118 was saying. And so what I wanna do this morning is is look at uh, these verses in Psalm 118, and I'm I'm gonna look at three specific lines or verses from Psalm 118 and think about how might we be mistaken about what these lines mean and what do they really mean, okay? Um, The first line I wanna focus on is in verse 25, that, that line that says, "'Save us, we pray, O Lord.'" This is what the people cried, right? Hosanna, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were excited about the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem because what they thought is they thought that Jesus had come to rescue them, to save them from the oppression of the Romans. They thought that Jesus was going to come and be this great political leader who was gonna lead them in a revolution, lead them in a rebellion against the Romans. He was gonna fix everything that was wrong about their lives. The oppression that they experienced, the lack of freedom that they experienced, they thought that that the discomfort that they experienced because of the government, and they thought that Jesus was gonna deliver them, was gonna get rid of everything that made life uncomfortable, all the obstacles that got in the way, And, and that's why they said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, he's come to fix our lives. He's come to fix everything that is wrong with our lives out there. That's what they were believing. That's why they were so excited. And yet, that's not why Jesus came. He didn't came to deliver deliver them from the Romans. He didn't come to, to save them from the oppression of the Romans. What he came to save them from and what he came to save us from is what's in here. He came to save us from hearts that are wrapped up in our own lives, that are centered on ourselves, lives that that think that we know what is best for ourselves, lives that are are running from what God thinks is best from us. That's what he saved us from, that's what he's come to save us from. He's come to save us from from lives that are estranged from God because we insist on living them apart from him. We insist on living them selfishly for our own glory, for our own needs, for our own desires and our own wants. That's why Jesus came to save us. That's what it means to be saved. And I think it can be easy for us to, to what the people wanted was for God to rescue them from all that was wrong out there instead of what's wrong in here. And I think it, it can be easy for us to, to long for God to do the same things for us. To think that, that you know, to, to want God to save me from everything that is wrong out there. To, for, for God to fix everything that is wrong with my life out there. Rather than to fix what I need fixed in here. The fact that I'm turned away from him. The fact that I've broken my relationship with him. Uh, if you want to drill down a little bit further, in verse 25 it says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. In other words, I, the, another translation might be, give us prosperity, make us prosper. But, but he says, we pray, give us success. I think we tend to think that being saved has to do with being successful. And, and how would you define success? That's what I'd like to ask. How do you define success? For those of us who have children or maybe grandchildren, what we think of as success is, is probably reflected in what we want for them. You know, what do we want for our kids? I would say a lot of us want our kids to excel, we want them to stand out, we want them to win, we want them to be happy no matter the cost, which often means they get whatever they want, you know, that's what success is. We want our kids to develop skills where they can grow up and have jobs where they can live a comfortable life, where they can make enough money, that they can live comfortably, they can, you know, be, they're able to buy whatever they want and not struggle, right? That's what we think success is about. And I think that is what we think salvation is. A life without struggle. A life with a lot of money maybe. A life with few problems. We want our kids to achieve great things and be liked and admired. Another way that we might but what might reflect what we think of as success is as we get older, you know, what we think our, the end of our life is gonna look like, what we, what we start thinking about retirement. You know, for a lot of us, retirement equals success, you know, being able to just relax and do whatever we wanna do, take trips wherever we wanna go, play golf as often as I wanna play golf. That's what success is. That's what salvation is for a lot of us. That's actually what Jesus came to save us from, believe it or not. He came to save us from living for ourselves and instead live in harmony with God and what he wants for us. He came to save us by repairing our relationship with him and enabling us to know God and know his love for us and live lives where we are intimately connected with him experiencing his his love and his provision for for everything that goes on in our lives. That is what salvation is meant to be. God wants us to cry out, save us! But what he wants us to see is that being saved is being connected to him, knowing him, living for him rather than for ourselves. And that is why Jesus came. Jesus came to live and to die in order to connect us to him to pay for our sin, to pay for our our selfishness so that we might know that we're forgiven and loved and that he's with us. How How badly do you want God to save you from yourself? Or do you just want a life that is happy, a life that is free of struggle and problems? Is that what you want from him? In verse 23, The second line I want to look at, he says, this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our our eyes. What is he talking about when he says, this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes? Well, obviously, he's talking about the verse right before that, where he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He's talking about you know basically when they would build buildings back then they would you know they would have all these different stones that they would use to 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 build the buildings and they would they would look for the right stone to fit in the right place and they would often see a stone that was like misshapen or you know it it didn't look like it was going to fit at all so they would just toss it aside it was worthless who cares about that thing It's, it's it's nothing to us and he says the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone the cornerstone is the stone that all the other stones depend on that everything is is built upon and so what he's saying is, is that this, this stone that is rejected, that is thought of as worthless, has actually become the stone of honor, the stone that is precious, the stone that is, the stone that is special. And, and the Israelites who were originally reading this, when they read the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, what they would have been thinking of is they would have been thinking of themselves, the Israelites. The Israelite nation was a nation that was looked down upon by all the rest of the powerful nations. They were looked, looked at as a nation that was worthless, that was nothing, that was powerless, that was weak. That was, you didn't have to even think about them. And yet this was a, a, a verse of, of incredible hope in the, in the sense that God had chosen Israel, this small little country that was worthless to everyone else. He had chosen this country to be his prized possession, the one that he was going to work through to bless the world. And so it was, it was, a, it was a verse of, of real hope. For them, But I think when they, when they look at this line, this is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes, I think the, the, ten, the temptation for, for them and for all of us is to focus on what God has done is he's taken us in our misery and he has exalted us. That is what God has done. What, what the Lord has done is he has exalted us and, and given us a place of honor. And they focus on this exalting part of what God has done. But what they don't recognize and i think what we don't recognize is that this verse the lord this is the lord's doing applies to the entire verse 22. that the lord's doing isn't just him exalting the people but it's actually him allowing them to be rejected it's him allowing them to be rejected this is god's process that we need to understand God isn't about just giving us everything that we want and making everything go go great. God's process is actually often using brokenness and suffering and pain and rejection and using those things to bring us to a greater place, to bring us to a greater place of honor and exaltation and health and wholeness. This is God's process, and, and you, can, you can tell because when you look at the life of Jesus, that's exactly what you see. And this, this verse, this specific verse, is actually used multiple times in the New Testament to talk about Jesus, to say this is what God has done in Jesus. He hasn't just done it with Israel, but ultimately he has fulfilled this verse in Jesus. He is the stone that the builders rejected, right? He is the one who was rejected by men, who was arrested and spat upon and beaten and hung on a cross, But he is the one who has become the cornerstone, the one through whom God has has done his ultimate work of rescuing his people, of paying for our sins. And and he has exalted Jesus to the highest place. This is God's process, to work through death and suffering and rejection and to bring about something greater. Uh, Those of you who have been going to the second hour class have been going through this book called The J-Curve, by Paul Miller, and that's, that's very much what this book is all about. It's about this is how God works in our lives. This is what it means. If we want to follow Jesus, we, we need to embrace this whole concept of how, how life goes, that, that life isn't just, a, just an upward you know, um, incline to greater and greater things. Actually, it's, it's a constant you know over and over again. That's a, that's a backwards J for you guys, isn't it? It's, it's over and over again. We go down, we suffer, we, we experience loss, and then, he, and then he brings us to a place of greater health and wholeness and resurrection. And he uses our suffering not only to bring about resurrection for ourselves, but resurrection for people around us and growth and blessing. This is God's process. And we need to, to see, see it here and receive it and embrace it. That God's marvelous work in our lives isn't just the victories, but it's also the defeats. It's also the defeats. It's not just the moments when we win and God provides and we get the job or, or we're healed or we get the relationship or we get the child or we get the promotion. God's marvelous work also includes the suffering. It includes the rejection. It includes losing someone that you love. It includes losing a job. It includes the car accident. It includes the health setback. It includes criticism, it includes loneliness. This is all part about how God works. God doesn't force these things on us, he doesn't make them happen to us, but he allows them to happen to us and he uses them to bring us to a greater place of healing and wholeness and joy. And so we need to learn to embrace these things And and it's it's only when we embrace these things that we can actually come to verse 24, where we say, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. No matter what happens this day, no matter what has happened this day, we can say, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. I know that um, one of the the people that he talks about in that book, in the J-curve, is this woman named Johnny Er Erickson Tata who, when she was 17, I think it was, she experienced a diving accident and, uh, and she's been in a wheelchair for the past 50 years. And yet, 50 years later, she still is able to wake up and say, this is the day the Lord has made. Let me rejoice and be glad in it. That's the only way we can say that, when things don't go the way that we want them to to know that God is, is, is working. This is his process. It, it's, it's, it includes suffering. It includes rejection as well as, as victory and triumph. The last misconception we might live with has to do with verses 19 and 20, where it says, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. The writer of the psalm is envisioning a procession where the people are going into the temple and offering sacrifices to God. But the, the only entrance is through the gates of righteousness. And the only people with the credentials to enter are those who are righteous. Right? This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. You know, it, it, it makes me think of... Uh, of, you know, all, every spy movie you ever watch or, or every maybe even bank heist movie, there's always this scene where, where the person or the people have to get into this very secure area. Maybe it's a secure room or maybe they're trying to get through a checkpoint and get into a country and, you know, they, they have like these, this false identity that they're using to try to get in. And then they present their passport, you know, to the person and, and he's bringing it up on the computer and it's like going through all the, all the different faces, it's using facial recognition and everything and, and, uh, and you're waiting to see, you know, everybody's on pins and needles to see if this person is going to be cleared to go through, to, that, that they've been cleared to have the right credentials to get through. And there's always this person who's furiously, you know, this computer hacker, who's furiously like typing all the information in to load it in so that, so that it comes up. And then eventually, you know, everybody's sweating, but eventually the, their picture comes up on the screen and it turns green. And it's like, okay, you're free to go, you know? And, uh, you know, this is the idea. The, the only people who can enter into the presence of God are those with the, cre- the credentials of righteousness. And what does it mean to be righteous? It means to do everything right to do nothing wrong. That's what it means to be righteous. And I think the misconception for for those reading this at this time and also for us as we think about entering the presence of God, only those who are righteous entering the presence of God is that we think that we can do enough to be righteous and to get in on our own merit, on our own deeds, on our own work. We think that if we do enough righteous things, if we do enough religious things, then God will accept us and love us and forgive us. That we can, we can get into God's presence because we can try hard enough. We can go to church enough. Or we can memorize enough Bible verses. Or we can pray enough for long enough. Or we can volunteer and do enough things and, and sacrifice enough. And if we do enough, if we do enough things, then we will have the credentials to come near to God and to be accepted by Him. Or maybe for some of us, we know inherently that, that we don't have the credentials. And, and, and every time we, we come into a space that is religious, maybe every time we come into church, we're always sweating. You know, hoping the computer hacker in the back room is doing enough to convince everybody else that I belong here. You know, we we try to put on a good face, and we know that that I'm, I know, I I act differently at home than I do when I'm here with everybody else, but hopefully nobody will notice. You know, I think all sorts of things inside here that nobody else hears or sees. I just hope nobody notices. And we're sweating. What if they find out? But the reality is is that when these verses talk about, you know, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. This is actually, the fact is that only the righteous can come into the presence of the Lord, but there is only one person who has ever been perfectly righteous. And that's Jesus himself. Jesus is the only one who has come and lived and done everything that his father asked him to do and been perfectly righteous, and he's the only one who deserves to enter through the gates of righteousness. And so the question is, how do we get in? How do we get in? Well, coming back to the spy movies, anybody has ever watched the, uh, the Mission Impossible movies? You know, at pretty much every point in one of those Mission Impossible movies, he has this, he has this special, uh, you know, this, this face mask thing that they, they make a, a false, like, face where you... you you know, you're, you're, you're watching the movie and there's this one guy and then all of a sudden he pulls the face mask off and it's actually Tom Cruise, you know, in, in disguise. Well, this is the way that we get in. Jesus offers to not only die for our sin, but to give us his credentials to get in to the presence of God, to, to, uh, God, to draw near to him. He offers to, I mean, there's several places in the New Testament where it says that what we need to do in order to come into the presence of God is to put on Christ, to put on Jesus. He offers to give us the mask, the Jesus mask, you know, to put on and then to walk right in. And it's completely legit. That is what he has done for us. That is what he offers us. I think that is what these verses point to that there is only one who is righteous, but he offers to give us his righteousness so that we can live in God's presence and know that when God looks at us, he's going to treat us just like he treats Jesus. That's how much he loves you if you've received the work of Jesus for you. And so he invites us to draw close to him, not based on what we do. This is going to be a constant struggle for us because we constantly have this drive in us to think that it's, it's because of what I do that God's gonna love me more. But I need to just rest in what Jesus has done and who he is and that's it. I'm just gonna finish with this, this thought. One, one really interesting thing about this Psalm is that um, it's the last in a set of Psalms. There's Psalm 113 through Psalm 118 have uh, been referred to as the Egyptian Hallel. And it's a group of psalms that are associated with Passover. They, they were often used to celebrate Passover by the Jewish people. And this is the last in that group of psalms used to celebrate Passover. They would sing these psalms at Passover. And, and it's interesting, you know, when Jesus came into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday, what, what he came to do is he came to celebrate Passover with his disciples. And, and on that Thursday, what did he do? He celebrated Passover, and that's when he instituted the Lord's Supper. And it's at, that, it's at that Passover celebration that Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. And then in the gospels it talks about how after he does that, after they celebrate the Passover, they then sing a hymn and then they go out to the garden of Gethsemane. And so the likelihood is that this being the last of the set of Psalms, to celebrate Passover. This is the last song that they sang together, Jesus and his disciples, before they went to Gethsemane, before he was arrested, before he was betrayed, before he was beaten and hung on a cross. These are the words that were on Jesus's lips. And it just blows me away. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what Jesus must have been thinking as he sang these words, as he sang? the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone as he anticipated being rejected himself. As he sang, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Can you imagine what was going through Jesus' mind as he sang these words? As he sang, the Lord is God and has made his light shine upon us. As he sang, bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar, he realized that he was the sacrifice. This blows me away and this is what gives me just so much more desire to sing. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's in Christ alone that my hope is found. To sing and to praise him for all that he has done. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would um, help us, help us, Father, to, to see